Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I am Professor Selena Bartlett. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Paolo Sorodio. He is a scientist at the University of Essex. He has a PhD in political, econ- in political economics from the University of Essex, and he's held many research positions, some at Northeastern University, some at Oxford, and many other places. And his expertise relies very much around uh, econ- econometrics, data analysis, text analysis, and machine learning. And he has a vast uh, research experience in network science. But today on the podcast, um, we're, we're talking a lot about his recent paper that he's a co-author on. And it was published just last year in the Public Health and Nutrition, and it's called Conflicts of Interest for Members of the U.S. 2020 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. And uh, we're very excited to have you, Paolo, on the podcast. Thank you for bringing your expertise and your research that you conducted around uh, this work. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So our audience would be really interested to know what made you, as a political economist, want to write and how did you come about writing this paper? Where did it all come from? Uh, so I've been um, through my work in uh, mostly in network network analysis, network science. Um, I've come to work with um, Professor David Stuckler at, at the University of Oxford around corporate influence and corporate capture of in- institutions, um, and that's where we first started to uh, delve into how corporations um, sort of with uh, aligned interests would sort of get together and 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 try to support fund uh, scientific research to advance um, their interests and it was th- sort of through that that we started looking at conflict of interest in um in in science and research um and it was through there that I started building sort of a network of of co-authors uh, through which I was invited to participate in in the study looking at um dietary guidelines um advisory committee and so the ninth version of this of this um of the skylines in the US. So uh, the interesting thing, if you'd like to highlight some of your most dis- surprising discoveries as you went into this to this um, work and research. Yeah, so so maybe maybe a bit of a background on on why these uh, guidelines matter. So um, I mean, these guidelines have been around for a long time. I think since um, the nineteen eighties, um, they're revised um, every so often. I think every five years. And, and they're really meant to sort of um, be the go-to guide for uh, dietary advice on meeting nutrition needs, promoting health, uh, preventing disease. Um, and they do inform a lot of um, uh, guides around the country, um, states, local governments, healthcare professional training, hospitals, community groups, a lot of folks that rely on these guidelines to set um, their recommendations. Um, and so there's sort of a, a three-step process in 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 how these guidelines come about. Um, there's a sort of public consultation um, where the nutrition topics that are going to be re- reviewed in that edition of the guidelines is identified. Um, then, um, so these are coordinated by two, um, agencies in, in the U S government, so the department of agriculture and health and human services. Um, and then they appoint, um, the advisory committee for the dietary guidelines, which is essentially comprised of, uh, of 20 experts in the fields of nutrition and medicine, which are going to review the scientific evidence around these topics uh, that are identified in the, in the first step. Um, and then they're going to, um, essentially the, um, dietary guidelines advice, um, are going to, to write the scientific report based on, um, what the advisory committee essentially says. Um, and so in this step, there are several instances where we do observe, um, an interest from industry, uh, especially in the, in the public consultation process. Um, we see that there's a, a push recommendations for particular foods or food groups, uh, from uh, industry groups, so grains, um, dairy, meat, and we do see uh, companies involved in that in that process, and also in the nominations for the members who end up sitting on this committee. So we do see the involvement of trade associations and other uh, corporations um, involved in that process of nominating people who end up then going to sit on the committee. Um, so so the, the the members who end up forming uh, the advisory committee are essentially considered temporary workers. 
um, for these federal agencies, but they are required to follow ethical rules, um, and especially those that um, regard conflict of interest. So they have to disclose um, financial and non-financial ties to industry. Um, those disclosures are going to be looked at um, from essentially um, USDA ethics officials. Um, they're going to look at that information and they're going to make a judgment on whether um, those conflict of interest, if they exist, whether they have to be waived in the interest of the expertise that these members can bring to the committee um, or whether they are not eligible to form part of this committee. Um, and so what was surprising to us in, the, in this version, in the ninth version of um, the DGA, was that um, the USDA officials clearly stated that none of the 20 committee members reported any entries um, that would prevent them from being appointed. Um, and at the end of this process, they were meant to release the documentation um, on which they made this assessment. And so that documentation was never made public. So that really prevents the the public, general public, or people like uh, myself and my co-authors uh, who are interested in, in, in transparency, interested in the, in the prevalence of, of conflict of interest in um, the public organizations to really scrutinize um, these members and, and find out whether uh, their judgment may be compromised to a certain extent. Um, and so, so it was really to explore that sort of lack of transparency that we decided to do the job of the USDA and find out, um, do a thorough search of um, the ties that these individuals may have or not have to industry actors and compile that information and then publicize it. So publish that information in, in a way that would be um, extremely conservative from the sort of ties we were able to ascertain and confirm that existed. Um, and then essentially debate whether uh, we should be concerned about uh, the fact that so many of these members have tied to, ties to industry. So I think the perhaps the most surprising, surprising finding was that 19 out of the 20 members of this committee had ties to um, industry actors, so had ties to corporations that could take several um, uh, forms. So some of them um, was through uh, research funding. So they received research funding from uh, corporations. Some sat on advisory boards um, of these corporations. Some had actually been employed by these cor corporations in the past. Um, some acted as consultants. And for some of them, and this was something that we uh, perhaps hadn't done before, was just look at the longevity of, of these ties to industry. Quite often, when we look at, for example, um, conflict of interest guidelines for uh, publications, um, for, for, for publication in scientific journals, very often we see that what's what constitutes a, a conflict of interest is a relationship to industry in the past three years for some journals, in the past five years for other journals. But we never really get a full picture of whether someone, for example, had built um, the last 20 years of their uh, research careers um, working with industry, working closely with industry. Um, and that's what we try to do in um, in in this in this paper is try to look at going back through time uh, how many of them have, for example, had just occasional periodic ties to industry where they collaborated on some research project, and how many of them have had a consistent long-term relationship with industry actors uh, throughout their research careers. So, after doing that work um, and discovering and publishing last year. Uh, that 19 out of the 20 members had uh, some kind of conflict of interest. You put this together in a paper, but if it, if anyone was to go and find your paper right now, which I'll put a link in the podcast to, you can't really see the images in those in that paper at the moment. Yes, um, so it's unclear to us um, why that's the case. Um, we do know, so the, the paper has been accepted and was published in the accepted manuscript format, um, which I'm not really used to, uh, to that happening. Um, but essentially the accepted manuscript format won't have, uh, won't be proof, won't be edited. Um, so we won't, you'll still find some um, typos here and there. Um, and at the same time, the images that appear in that, in that file are not, are not very clear. And so one of the things we did, obviously when we compiled this information, we essentially produce a database 
um, with uh, hundreds of, of, of entries, which is not the best way to summarize this information to someone who wants to um, get a, su a summary look into the ties that these members have um, with corporations. And so what we did was we used um, some network um, visualizations of these of these ties kind of to give people an idea of who are the most central actors in these uh, in these relationships both in terms of the corporations and of the um of the members of the uh, dietary guidelines and at the same time we also wanted to sort of show the, the not the counterfactual but show whether these um members of the dietary guidelines had built their careers entirely just working with um with industry or whether they also were successful, for example, in um, in competitive research grants, and so we also um, published that information in, in also in a in a sort of graph format um, of their successful uh, research bids through time and and how those compare to uh, collaboration with industry. But unfortunately, the the graphs are not um, the resolution of of the, of the plots is is terrible, so you can't really can't really see them. I've had several people reach out to me. Uh, to ask us for the original plots, um, which sometimes is difficult to um, to to share because um, some of these uh, plots are quite these are heavy files um, because they're these network files that they tend to be quite uh, quite heavy and so I can't just you know upload them as an attachment to uh, to an email. Um, but so we've been in conversation with um, with the journal. Um, because there's some um, hesitancy from the side of the publisher in um, publishing our our paper with sort of the names of um, of the members of the um, of the advisory committee. But all of um, this is so, public information for people if they want to go and find out. Oh, correct. Everything, everything you've published is public. Yes. So everything we've uh, all the information we've compiled is um, is open source. Um, is out there for anyone to um, to to look to look for it and and compile it in the same way we did. Um, we're publishing as well replication files, um, not just for the analysis um, and data management, but also for the original search. So for every tie between a member of the advisory committee and an industry actor, which we had in the end to sort of classify in 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 these um, six or seven categories we use in the paper. For every tie, we include the URL um, for the web web page where we observe that tie. So what information about that tie is disclosed. And most of these actually come from uh, published um, papers from these um, from these members of, of the advisory committee in uh, which they themselves disclose this information. So the interesting thing for the people listening to the podcast is not so much about um, this, but more about what we eat, right? So we rely a lot on believing in science and public health officials in terms of public health nutrition to guide us because how are we to know what's in the food we're eating all the time? So we do, there's a lot of faith and trust put into these guidelines and they're used really around the world, as you said earlier. So I guess what I see a lot out in the world is when people say, well, if that's published by a scientist or in a in a reputable journal, especially high-ranking journals, then that's got more credence than something else. And I think the surprising thing probably for you as a political economist public publishing in public health domains and medical journals is the level of pushback you got for publishing this work that's all f publicly available anyway. That's a bit yes, surprising too, I think, for the public to understand. Yes, in, in a way, yes. It's surprising because I mean there's an element of um and this has been quoted in some of the reviews I've I've gotten for um over the years for other work that I've done on Coca-Cola, for example, um, that we're sort of engaging in naming name and shame exercise where we're sort of naming these folks that collaborate with the industry and we're shaming them by uh, taking this information out in the public, um, which for me, it's difficult to understand, given that we collect this information typically from publications of these uh, same individuals where they do uh, acknowledge um, having received research funding or having had several ties from, um, from industry actors, from corporations. And some of the information we actually obtained from either their CVs or their bios. Uh, in their academic profiles. So this is information that, you know, they are 
themselves using to to promote their work, to promote um, their consultancy work with uh, with these corporations. So I don't think they themselves feel shame that we write these papers where we just put a, put out um, a, a sort of a, a paper where we think about whether the guidelines that are being produced with people that have so many ties to 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 industry whether those guidelines can be can be trusted at face value so it's yeah it's hard for me to understand um the pushback when we're just we're not revealing any private information we're just using public uh, available information we're just compiling it in a single database um, that then can be used to for example visualize these uh, these relationships using different methods and that so just makes it easier for us to understand it. Because food plays such a huge role in human health. Um, I mean, obviously, I've read the guidelines deeply. I know that you didn't go into the guidelines as much because you were focusing on something, a different level, so that you didn't get influenced. Um, but our role for me is specifically to see what the guidelines are and what the recommendations are. And one from personal interest, I want to know, but also to, to see what people are being told, especially diabetics and people with chronic diseases and obesity is on the rise. And I think the thing that was kind of stand out for me is that the guidelines look fantastic. They've got lots of vegetables and water and people exercising all through them. And I think, at face value, it's exactly what you'd expect. Keep your portion sizes down, have less than 10% in added sugar, and uh, the list goes on a very, you know, highly nutritious. There's nothing to argue in the guidelines, but the problem is that not all calories are the same and you could you just step outside and, and they're putting it on the individual and their individual choices. But I think where it falls down for me, and I saw it in my own life personally, in my own diet, and and what I've learned in terms of how added sugar, for one example, affects the brain. It doesn't take very much to step outside those guidelines for an individual to even realize because sometimes a serving size might be one that keeps you in the guideline, but the package actually has four servings in it, for, any, for example. So you have to be, you almost have to be a mathematician to follow the guidelines and stay within them to keep healthy. And I think that's the missing piece. And I know we have dietitians, we have many other people managing that. But if you're in a hospital, I don't know how many people on listening have been in a hospital, and you see what food is served that are using the guidelines potentially um, for people that are sedentary and not moving. I think it's quite outstanding to me that they could be, I don't know how they could be following those guidelines. Yes, it's well. We could talk about schools as well, and and the food we um, we serve in schools, and we get our kids used to uh, from an early age. But I think it's I think it's just very difficult. Even if you have in mind that you cannot go above a certain amount of sugar a day, um, when you go out and you buy food in the supermarket, and you look, you'd have to waste a lot of time looking at the percentage of sugar included in in foods because literally almost every. Almost everything has added sugar, and quite often it's very difficult or very expensive to find an alternative that does not have added sugar. And so, if when you when you combine that with the cost of living crisis, with rising inequality, where people struggle to make ends meet, um, at the end of the day, they're just going to have to purchase what they're able to afford. And more often than not, um, it's the unhealthy, ultra-processed food that is going to be cheaper. Uh, for the household and that's what eventually people end up eating um, and very often without realizing what the implications of those things are for health in general. And also I think um, in terms of medical practice, healthcare, you know, I'm a pharmacist and you know, I work in these domains as well and you can see that if a big journal is not publishing this work uh, and then um, people that are incredibly busy trying to help people stay healthy are just using the guidelines to give to people saying it's up to you. This is what they say you should do. It's just not possible. Is it? Yes. And that's why I think that uh, the way we manage public private partnerships um, is incredibly, um, is incredibly delicate and important because it, it does have spillover effects um, into the institutions that end up regulating um, and influencing the way we, uh, the way we behave and what we eat and the, and the decisions we, we take. Um, because we we do need to have trust in institutions 
And if that trust is broken down, we're left to our own devices to make informed decisions for which we're not, we don't have the capability to do, we don't have the understanding, nor should we, because these are incredibly specialized knowledge um, that one should have to be able to make these decisions on a daily basis. And mm -hmm. if that institution is, uh, institutional trust is broken because some institutions do sort of partner with industry, which has their own set of interests and objectives, and ends up sort of polluting in a way the scientific evidence that ends up being produced. That's now that's problematic. More and more need for industry partnerships with universities as well. That's happening. So once and I guess the biggest surprise to me was when you described to me how difficult and how many reviews you had on this paper. That's all publicly available, and you just assembled it to get it published. I've never heard of that many that many reviews ever before. Yes, I think when again when we entered the realm of um pinpointing individuals and I do understand sort of um the ethical considerations around that especially when we live in you know sort of a, a what people now commonly refer to as a cancel culture when it's very easy for people to get um to get attacked on social media, et cetera. Not that this is such a contentious issue um, as with others, but I, I do understand when, um, you know, when we name individuals, but at the same time, these are individuals that um, have promoted this information in the first place. So I think it's, um, I do understand to a certain extent, um, but but not sort of the difficulty we've we've gotten in, in getting some of these papers um, over the finish line and some of the reviews we had to, um, to address, um, because at the end of the day, as well. <laughs> exactly. Also with lawyers involved, because there are all these worries about libel and defamation when at the end of the day, we're not making claims about the integrity of these research. We're essentially saying that first and foremost, we need to be able to quantify the prevalence of these cases of these conflict of interest because they do exist i mean it's not like um these um, executive agencies are not worried about conflict of interest they are in theory they have procedures in place to to manage and deal with these conflict of interest because they do occur and we do have enough research to show that very often the the people who develop ties to industry don't even realize, but on, on some subconscious subconscious level, they do feel a sense of uh, of debt towards um, the funders of the studies that they're running. And so not because they want to, but the results of, of that research may be favorable towards the funder just because there is a psychological mechanism in place um, to, to make that happen. And so, and, and we're also not saying that these researchers are somehow ill-intentioned in the way that they collaborate with industry. I mean, very often they um, it's perfectly plausible that they believe in this research. They go out to find um, institutions that are willing to fund um, these research projects. And again, as you mentioned, the university setting right now, uh, there's a lot of pressure to get uh, to get grants uh, for research projects. That's that's an integral part of, of an academic's career in terms of career progression as well, we knew need to get need, knew, do need to get external funding. Very often, it's difficult to get public funding for the projects we uh, we want to um, to kickstart. And industry very often is is the only is the and, only choice. And also, part of an academic progression is publishing in prestigious journals. Yeah, yeah. And so, so in, in to get there, I mean, it depends a lot on the field. But in some of these fields, you know, you do need to get um, a randomized control trial to um, to run a specific study, and those are not cheap to fund. And so, very often, you do turn to um, to to industry partnerships to get to get the ball rolling. Okay. Um, and so, yeah. So, with all of that in mind, let's now flip to the other side. Uh, so because they say it's up to the individual to make these choices, so let's let's be individuals here and help people make understand that uh, everyone is different and mostly uh, you can't eat any of the food in the middle of the supermarket. You have to stick to the periphery of the supermarket and the only thing that keeps your calorie within the calorie guidelines is to eat meat or, or not necessarily meat but eat very close to where the food came from, which is lean, protein 
and vegetables and fruits. So in the guidelines, they mentioned orange, like freshly squeezed juice as being okay, but it's nothing like having just that piece of fruit. For example, the calorie intake is significantly greater to maintain. Yeah. Like 1,200 calories is first is the, the lower limit for some, but it's very hard to stay in 1,200 calories and not put on weight with the current food selection choices you have, unless you're following a blue zone diet or a Mediterranean diet or have very small portion control, et cetera, and doing exercise as well. So what did you do when you've worked all of this out? I mean, obviously you're com- you come from Portugal originally, and so this is probably not as much an issue because you have more locally produced foods. But I lived in America for a long time and I found it really difficult to not put on weight or and also when I come to England too I find it really difficult because a lot of the food's processed but in America specifically a lot of the bread which is recommended in the guidelines has a lot of sugar embedded in it and I had no idea because I came from I grew up in Australia and it was a little bit it's moved away from that but maintaining 1200 calories for someone who's short like myself is really hard <laughs> to be really frank like I'd have to yeah. almost run three hours a day to be able to eat what I was eating there. And that's why I end up putting on weight. And it's not just about what you eat either. It's how it affects your metabolism. And we can go into that in great detail. But you you, you are a vegan. I know that. So how did that choice happen? And learning about these labels um, and having three children yourself, what do you do? Um, well, it's again, we live, so we live close to Barcelona and, um, we're lucky to have, um, to have a lot of option when it comes to fruits and vegetables, fresh fruits and veg- vegetables that are not overly expensive. Um, I mean, I do remember when I lived, um, I lived in Boston that, well, my supermarket of choice was, um, was Whole Foods precisely because of mm-hmm. The variety of, of fresh fruits and vegetables you could it's get there, expensive. Um, but incredibly expensive. Obviously, I wouldn't be able to do that now with um, with three children. Um, but but we're lucky to have uh, that going here. At the same time, because we're vegan, um, and Spain is still taking its first steps in in sort of the vegan processed food uh, industry. So there isn't a lot of processed ultra processed food uh, available to us uh, in the form of of plant based meats and cheeses and all these things, um, which you know forces us to eat um, as as natural and uh, as possible. Um, so you know learning about Working in this field and, and learning about these things did make me uh, a bit more conscious. Um, also, because we're vegan, we have to read the labels on everything we buy to make sure that it doesn't have some skimmed milk powder in there. Um, and so that made us more aware also of of the presence of, of sugar um, in some in some of in some foods in, in the supermarket. Well, um, but I think very it's very unhealthy and vegan, can't you? Because of, of course, yes, and there, there is that misconception. Hard. There's that misconception that you know. Recently, I I um I did a, a a course on on baking, like vegan baking, um which uses all kinds of um of of sugars that we shouldn't we shouldn't be eating on a daily basis, and and that was actually the first thing the um, the chef told us. Like th- these are things to cook and eat, you know, every now and then, not not on a on, on a weekly or daily basis. Um, and when I bake these cakes, people, and I say that they're vegan, people think, oh, they're healthy. No, they're not healthy. Not they're just <laughs> not animal-based. Um, so there's no dairy in it. Um, but but yeah, but you can be incredibly unhealthy. And I do see that when I um, when I travel to the UK um, and, and, and I do see the offer in supermarkets and, you know, the vegan ultra-processed food offer now is um, through the roof. You can get basically anything. Um, any replacement substitute for a meat or fish dish that you had um, in the past. Now you have a vegan alternative, um, ultra-processed, ultra-processed. Yes. From Robert Lustig's work and his book, Metabolical, he talks a lot about it's not even necessary the sugar or the fats or anything. It's more about what's going added into the food, whether it's emulsifiers and chemicals and the processing itself. He calls it class three processing and class four processing and they're incredibly bad for your health absolutely but having the knowledge to 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 make these assessments when when you go out shopping 
I think it's too much to ask the individual to uh, to do. So I, I I do reject that notion of personal responsibility. I mean, to a certain extent, um, when you give a lot of information to individuals and then individuals do make an informed decision about what they decide to eat and why they decide to eat what they eat, um, that's that's a different matter. But I think it's very difficult to arrive to that stage because we have to take into, into consideration so many factors. And one of them is um, whether people have uh, the disposable income to afford healthy food and more often than not they don't yeah. and in the uk now you we have uh, you know a, a massive cost of living crisis where people are recurring to food banks um people who are in in full employment and they're using food banks because they have to choose between heating their house or buying food and it's been and freezing cold hasn't it exactly and so the the food they have available in food in food banks they have no control over that um and so most of it is through donations uh, through charities and so it's and it's mainly long living food that they want exactly so putting that personal responsibility burden on those individuals i think is incredibly unfair I, I agree with that but it's and then saying that you just need to exercise more too when we know that exercise is the is really important for your health but it does nothing to reduce weight gain from food food is the number one medicine source and it's the number one thing that makes us really unwell and metabolically yes. unwell which leads to all the chronic diseases it's kind of well documented now so food is medicine but it's also poison isn't it and there are all these sort of uh then feedback loops where you know people who exercise then think they you know um have earned the treat and engage in um more unhealthy eating following that so i think the framing around you know exercise is incredibly important and we should um we should you know motivate people and make it easy for them to uh, to exercise but we shouldn't have framed it in this way it's not um it's not about food is is a totally different and the guidelines too, which is really interesting, they've changed the lifespan. So they're looking at babies, um, different age groups, and looking at you know over fifties and seventies, and which I haven't seen before. I think that's an addition to this new to the twenty 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 five guideline. Um, but what I found interesting as a mother myself, running a lab in San Francisco at the time, like I thought I was being really good mother, uh, giving rushing to work, but throwing down boxes of cereal and and glass of orange juice. And this is in the Bay Area. So I really thought I was doing the right thing by my children, getting them some breakfast before school. But I've now since learned after discovering sugar is addictive as alcohol and nicotine in my own research lab, just how bad that was. I really had no concept. And that's a horrible thing to say for my kids. Um, but it's the reality too that we need to talk a little bit about to throw an egg and boil an egg to give them instead was hard yakka for me at that time, writing grants, trying to run a big lab and trying to get the yeah. kids to school. And I, you know, so that's another reality that um, those breakfast cereals, like, and then you have children not wanting to eat vegetables or, you know, this complicated thing too that exists, which I'm sure you're aware of, and your kids are going to be surrounded by other kids that have lunch boxes full of snacks that have got plastic lids that they pull off. and Yeah, and, and the birthday parties they get invited to and that are just, yeah. yeah. So what do you do? Of... I mean, it, it, it gives them the taste, right? And the taste is much stronger than the healthy taste. Um, yeah, well, for that... us... For us, it's easy in a way because we're vegan, and most of these um, of these sweets and cakes and and these things you see in birthday parties are not vegan, um, and so so our kids are totally okay with that. They just ask, "Is it vegan?" And if it's not, they just don't eat it. And okay. so for for most of these parties, what we end up is we you know we bake something ourselves, and then they take it like you know we bake a chocolate muffin or something. We make it home, and they take it and they eat that instead of instead of the you know 100 different types of, of, of uh, sugar-laden foods they have at the at, at the birthday party wow that's called organization yeah so the one thing about um and I I know someone that's really trying to make this change too but breakfast cereals are really labeled as kind of healthy and yeah and um, just to give you an example my father-in-law the other day he's a diabetic he's 90 and it's been struggling but um his carer accidentally switched by mistake into honey nut 
instead of the ones he likes. And his his insulin his um sugar spiked within a couple yeah. of hours to out outside range, and that was the only difference that had happened was the switch in the breakfast cereal. <laughs> so that which people are not are not aware of, um, and and yes, it's 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 a struggle to try to to try to find a a breakfast cereal that does not have added sugar, and the ones that don't have added sugar very very often they have sweeteners. Um, which is, you know, another conversation to have as well. Um, so you may not want to have either of those. Um, and what do you do? And maybe there's one brand that it's incredibly expensive and it's the only cereal you can find without, um, without, without added sugar. And that may be just in some supermarkets. So the other shock if you don't have, have access was, to those, what do you do? Yeah. yeah the other shock I have is orange juice. So my son loved a glass of orange juice every morning and, I've since learned that's really, and I, I tried to buy the best, freshest one I could. So, but I didn't get the one that was very freshly squeezed. But even still, if you look at a freshly squeezed orange juice, glass of orange juice, you're looking at probably three or four oranges. Three or four oranges, which you wouldn't have been able to eat whole. So you're missing the fiber and everything. Anyway, exactly. that's just my um, guilty mother segment. Um, <laughs> mine's too late. My kids are much older than yours. <laughs> well done for being on top of this, Paolo. I'm really proud of well, you. We, we live and learn. I'm sure yes. we're making tons of mistakes that in 20 years' time we'll find out about them. Oh, yes. it's Parenting is the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, so what have you come to see as the most important issue facing people now? Uh, um, in general, I mean, I think, I think distrust or lack of trust in, in institutions, which is allied to to um to a bunch of different things like corporate capture of um of politics for example of political institutions um skewing the information we get from those institutions um i think that's that's incredibly harmful um but this is also you know related to what we're currently experiencing in terms of political polarization in terms of misinformation and and the inability that you know, currently we have of of telling whether something is um, is true or false, um, or whether something is slightly twisted to fit into some narrative that we buy into because it reinforces pre existing beliefs that we have. Well, you're um, a machine learning expert with this Chat GBT phenomena where they've got the whole world world talking about their app, which is a m remarkable marketing feat. An incredible, Absolutely. incredible feat that OpenAI managed to do, um, and then backed by Microsoft now. But you can see how that's a whole other way of influencing information, isn't it? Yes. Although I think that um, I don't, I don't know exactly how and where it will be mostly used, um, but I think still the number of folks that are currently using ChatGPT is still very, um, it's very small. Um, but but it can be used to produce information in in different ways. But I think the company is already working to address that. For example, around students using ChatGPT to write essays, um, the company is producing um, algorithms that will be able to detect a watermark in what's uh, produced by ChatGPT, so that someone could actually check whether that text was um, produced by ChatGPT or not. Um, but well, again, not, but I think I'm it's... not really worried about that because I think that that will solve itself like a calculator did for mathematics. And people would have hated that too, that we're using their brain for to do all the calculations. I think it'll be another tool, but I, I do see it, how it can be influenced in the same way that you're talking about government influence from industry. These kind of open AI things can also be influenced, can't they, depending on where they're dragging the data from. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know exactly how how that would fit into um into this into this sort of um misinformation or disinformation campaign. Um but I think that's where individuals will um will struggle. Um I think yeah. all of this is allied to a current scenario of of increasing economic inequality, um cost of living crisis, um deterioration of of public services in 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 many um many European countries. Um, that we're seeing that well, the UK perhaps is the most prime example, but we've we've seen that in other countries as well, like you know, Southern European countries post COVID, um, schools are struggling, hospitals are struggling, um, and so 
and adding to to this, we have um, we have climate change that is going to exacerbate some of these inequalities that we're observing now. Once we start seeing different areas um, hit by extreme weather events, communities uh, struggling to to cope with that and to recover from that, um, and seeing very little done in terms of um, of, of preparedness uh, from from governments. So the migrant crisis is going to um, to get worse. Um, and so what we're living today in, you know, in the UK, the whole political uh, narrative around stopping migrants' boats from um, from from entering U- UK, crossing the UK border, I think that's just going to get worse. Same with uh, Southern Europe, um, with immigration from uh, North of Africa. So this is only going to get um, going to get worse with um, with climate change. So it's and when you ally all of this to the distrust that people have in institutions at the moment, and sort of how they've been let down as well to a certain extent, I think we have um, we have a complicated scenario for the for the next uh, twenty years. Yes, so I assume that um, having three kids, you have a lot of hope. So let's um, give the audience some of your hopeful side of all of that. Well, you became vegan, I'm guessing that's part of it, but. Uh, I tell me as a machine learning person too. I know people like to flip over to the far other side about how that can save things, but I don't go that far. Um, but you know what you eat has a big influence on how you think too. So that's why food is so important. Yeah, I mean the you know the reason why um, we we sort of transitioned towards a vegan diet was um, in a way related to. Um, Related to the effects um, on 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 climate, uh, that these the two big industries of of meat and and fish, um, and and those have been well documented, um, and so that's kind of what drove us to uh, to make the transition. But also because we, you know, we we couldn't find a, a strong moral argument for why we should um, we should um, eat animals, and so that's and and you know we transition in. At a time where it's not so difficult to um, to make the transition, because there's a lot of information um, about you know how to keep a healthy diet and whether you need to supplement some nutrients or not. And you know, it turns out the only thing we need to supplement is vitamin B12. Um, and it turns out that most of livestock actually is supplemented with vitamin B12 because they're not grass-fed anymore. So most folks that um, eat meat, they're actually eating, you know, meat that has been supplemented itself by um, with B12. So it, they're indirectly being supplemented as well. And you know, everything else, it's it's quite straightforward um, to replace. Um, and so, so that's kind of why we. Um, uh, we made this uh, this decision, informed decision, and nowadays it's much easier to do that um, than it has been. I, don't, I would say like thirty years ago. Um, so yeah. So what's your purpose now? What's your next direction? Uh, well, raising uh, raising the children in in an uncertain future. I think that um, that's sort of a heavy burden, knowing that we're. Um, we're raising our children in a society that is um, that is changing in a world that's that's changing and with so much uncertainty ahead of us. I guess it's trying to mitigate that to to a certain extent, trying to you know teach them um, the values that we believe are going to um, to make them happy in life. Um, we don't you know care so they? much about tell me, success. Tell me those for your family. Oh, compassion. Um, care for 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 others um i think we we live in a society that is uh quite individualistic in some senses and we've we felt that when we moved from the uk to spain um uh here there's a sort of little respect for for the things that are public public goods that everyone enjoys but there's very little done to um to maintain that and to respect that and i think um we can improve um we can definitely be more compassionate to others, especially when we're living through um, a period where we're demonizing others, um, we're making them responsible for whatever's going wrong in our uh, in our lives or in our countries, and we've seen that in the UK with um, with um, with the European Union, 
being sort of what's what was dragging the country down now the migrants that are coming from uh from abroad and and the you know the narrative here is not that different we always try to find um the other to blame and and to rally against that other and i think you know that's that's something we should definitely work on be more compassionate towards one another um and you know better our lives as as a society and as a community that's a wonderful way to finish the podcast paolo thank you for your time it's been enlightening and wonderful conversation and it's really uh, wonderful that you embarked on applying some of your expertise to look at that research it's a shame um from a as an academic and a professor myself to see that the only place that you hoped would be free from conflicts of interest and and some kind of guidelines can be protected would be in our scientific journals so that's a bit of a upsetting thing to hear about but i i think we all understand it and experience it so but we need to bring these things to light so people can make better informed choices at least and understand if it's going to be on the individual, at least let the individual get as much of the information as possible so they can make informed decisions. So thank Definitely. you very much. Yes. And we wish you all the best raising your three children. I do thank hope you. that you come up with all these great solutions together as a family um, so that our future is bright. Definitely. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. You're welcome. So in this podcast, we're putting a lot of emphasis and focus on how do we know whether what we're eating is medicine, meaning good and healthy for us, or is it poison disrupting our metabolic systems and creating havoc inside our bodies? And how do we know this? Well, in the past, we've relied heavily on guidelines set by unbiased scientific evidence um, and advisors with expertise in nutrition and diet. But how do we know how those guidelines have been set? So it was recognized some years ago that food and, and diet can lead to chronic diseases such as cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, obesity and some forms of cancer. And as we sit here today in 2023, more than half of living adults have more have one or more diet-related chronic diseases. So as we sit here now, the striking observation and data is showing that half of adults have one or more diet-related chronic diseases. So how is that happening when these dietary guidelines have been around for a really long time. So for people that may not realize, the US Dietary Guidelines for Americans, or the DGA, was actually set by the US federal government to provide dietary advice for the public, and it started more than 100 years ago. And this was happening through bulletins and posters, books and websites and social media. And this is um, taken from the DGA website. And the idea behind dietary guide, guidance is really to help us understand what to eat and drink f to improve our health. But the messaging has been changing over time. And that's to reflect the changes in nutrition science and the understanding of the role of foods and nutrients on health and diet. And you know that there's so, much, so many different debates out there about what you should eat and what you should not eat, whether you should be a flexitarian, a vegetarian, a vegan, um, etc., whether you should, you know, many different aspects to diet. And this all started in 1977, where there was many years of discussion and review and debate in the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Nutrition and Human Needs. And this was led by Senator George McGovern. And they released the Dietary Goals for the United States. And the aims and goals of this were to avoid overweight and consume only as much energy as ex is expended if overweight decrease energy intake and increase energy expenditure. The second goal was to increase the consumption of complex carbohydrates and naturally occurring sugars from around 28% to 48% of energy intake. The third goal was to reduce the consumption of refined and processed sugars 
by about 45% to account for about 10% of the total energy intake. And the goals went on. The other one was to reduce fat consumption from 40% to 30% of energy intake, which is all very well. So that was in 77. And then by 1980, that was the very first publication of the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. And this became the cornerstone of all sorts of federal food and nutrition guidance. So now we've got the 2020 to 2025 guidelines that um, are centred around the overall philosophy of make every bite count, meaning make it as nutritious as possible. But it's a heavy focus on it's an individual choice to make healthy food choices and options around what you drink and eat. And it makes you wonder, understanding that these guidelines actually are used to dictate or to provide um, advice because it's aimed at disease prevention and health promotion. The information in the dietary guidelines is used to develop federal food, nutrition and health policies and programs. It serves as the basis for nutrition education materials designed for the public and all sorts of education components of the USDA and human health and services food programs, state and local governments, schools, food industry, other businesses, community groups, and many other things. It, it forms a basis for developing programs, policies, communications. And for this very reason, it's kind of set the tone for global nutrition policies. And I can speak to that in Australia. We have very similar nutrition and dietary guidelines that are accepted and extended from these gu guidelines. And one of the premises of the recent 2020 to 2025 DGA is that it's, it's just about everyone, no matter their health status, can benefit, they say, from shifting food and beverage choices to better support healthy dietary patterns. So... In general, if you go to hospital or, or other places, what you're eating is being guided by these guidelines. So these are playing a very, very important role in helping us choose whether what we're eating is healthy and good for us or is poison and bad for us, causing, in the end, over time, chronic diseases. And, of course, all of us, when we're out shopping and see things that look like they're healthy, and have been recommended as being nutrition of nutritional value, we tend to believe what we have been told. So for this purpose, I think it's really important to think about how those guidelines have been put together and how to interpret them. So how do you know what you're eating and how, how much you're eating is actually sitting within the guidelines? If you go if you look at the link of the podcast to the PDF of the guidelines it's actually a beautiful document it, it's got lots of beautiful vegetable pictures and food that looks um, really lovely and healthy um, the guidelines set out all of the best things you can do to be healthy in terms of you know limiting the amount of sugar and describing about the amounts of different vegetables and grains um, that you should be eating but from that, I think it's very hard to determine exactly what are the right amount of percentages of food that you could be eating. It's not really completely clear. And also, one, uh, some, there's many, many figures in the guidelines, and one of them looks at the dietary intakes compared to recommendations in terms of the percent of the U.S. population who are below or above each dietary goal. And one of the goals in there is to include refined grains, you know, which is white bread and other things in your diet. But currently, in the American diet at least, almost 60% of the population is eating more refined grains than they should be in their diet. But the current guidelines still recommend including refined grains when the majority of the population is overeating them. So I think this it's just not very clear um, what we should be doing. So 
So as, as we think about is food medicine or poison, I think the one conclusion I've come to after someone that uh, would be giving a lot of cereals and juices to my kids um, in the morning before I understood just how much sugar and added sugar was included in that, the guidelines um, specifically state that we need to have less than 10% of added sugars in our diet and for a calorie intake, depending on your size and age, between 1,200 calories at the minimum up to 2,800 calories at the higher end, that means that the amount of sugar or added sugars you can have in a day are between either 120 calories or 280 calories. If we think of a typical can of soda, we're looking anywhere between 100 and 250 calories just in one can of soda. So already before eating anything else, the amount of added sugar has been exceeded in a diet. So it's just something that we should be really aware of and understand that as you heard earlier, in 1977, there was a number of goals, and one of them was to limit, uh, the idea was to try and limit and avoid overweight and obesity and decrease di type 2 diabetes, etc. But what is the current statistics in 2020 to 2025? In fact, now 74% uh, of adults are overweight or have obesity, Adult ages between 40 and 59 have the highest rates at 43% of any other age group. 40%, and this is the most alarming statistic, of children and adolescents are overweight or have obesity. And the rate is increasing throughout childhood and the teen years. And I could go on and on about all the other chronic diseases, but I'll just specifically focus on diabetes next or rather than heart disease but 11 percent uh, these are americans but i'm sure it's similar in other countries have type 1 or type 2 diabetes 35 percent have pre-diabetes and people 65 and older have the highest rate at 48 percent 90 percent of adults with diabetes are overweight or have obesity so altogether that means that 46% of Americans either have prediabetes or some type of diabetes. That's nearly one in two people. And many of these people won't even realize that they have it. So with bearing that in mind, and then knowing for decades we've, we've published these guidelines and people have been using them, then there, there's something not right that doesn't add up. And I think what I'm taking from these guidelines is that the recommendations are really very much pointed at the individual they're asking people to exercise more and they're asking people to make every bite count. Well, I understand that's um, a good philosophy and the guidelines are fabulous. In reality, if you walk into a supermarket or go anywhere, especially currently, it's much cheaper to eat highly ultra-processed food than it is to eat healthy food. So I guess the question is how much individual choice is there really in making your food become medicine rather than poison a recommendation for how to, to lay out your plate and they have something called the my plate plan um, this this is uh, something you can go to a website and find and they're saying at least uh, make at least half of your plate fruit and vegetables uh, and they're saying that it's best to eat a variety of fruit, vegetables, grains, dairy, and fort fortified soy alternatives and protein foods. And they're asking you to eat and drink and choose options that are full of nutrients. So make every bite count. And look at the plate and be careful about portion size. And down the bottom underneath that, they've got a big section on limiting what things you should limit. And these things are foods that are that are laden with added sugars, fat and sodium. But in reality, it's a really difficult thing to do because nearly every processed food has some kind of added 
sugar, fat or sodium or emulsifies or, or chemicals to keep it living a long time and being able to ship, be shipped everywhere. So in this podcast, uh, I've done an interview with Dr. Paolo Sorodio, who him and his colleagues were asking the questions um, as economists and political economists, exactly what are and who are the people doing the dietary guidelines and do they have any conflicts of interest because I think one of the mo most important things as we're setting these guidelines, we want to make sure that they're being set by people that don't have any need to influence what type of foods get listed onto those dietary guidelines. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Paolo. I hope that you consider everything that you're, when you're thinking about every bite counting I think one of the key things here, here is to think about that food is this going to be medicine for my body or is it going to be poison and that's all the only thing I can think about right now in terms of the questions you can ask yourself and a great place to start is to turn around the label and at least look at the serving size and look at how much sugar and sodium and added fat uh, per serving size and then become aware of just exactly how much added sugar, sodium and fat you're actually consuming.